Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. We are following David through through the Bible all the way. This is like the 55th or 56th Sunday we've spent on the life of David. And uh, one of the reasons I choked up uh, while reading this story, we, we probably, most of us are familiar with the, the story, the outline of the story, even with the details of the story. The reason that I choked up is because it's like receiving that kind of news about a friend. Uh, since we've spent so much time, and as we've seen, there is no other text in the ancient world that devotes as much space to one character as does the Bible to the life of David. We've spent so much time uh, with David. It's not like a preacher just got up one Sunday morning and said, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. We knew that 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 were coming. But before we got there, we spent, we did our homework, our legwork, and we took the time to know David as a person. And in the same way, when you receive disappointing news like that about any friend, you, it hits you. Uh, what can I do? What could I have done? How could I have been uh, possibly a better influence in my friend's life? So listening to the song, of course, Garrison Keillor, 73, he's retiring. He's done this since uh, 1974. So the show has kind of a, it's, it's based, uh, you might have, Remember a few years ago, we did a Bible Home Companion Christmas, and it's kind of based on that, like a old-time radio show, live on the air. And I guess you could listen, you could have listened to it live last night. But Joe Newberry singing the song entitled Reminiscent, and there was a phrase in it, and the phrase was, The tempest of the human heart which cometh unawares. The tempest of the human heart which cometh unawares. And, of course, Jason, if you listen to him singing this morning, he talked about the tempest and the storm. There is part of me um, that doesn't want to go into this chapter. It's like talking about a, a person that you've come to know and like a friend. Like It's like talking gossip rumor about them behind their back. There's part of me that stands on the threshold between the end of chapter 10 of 2 Samuel before we get into the 11th chapter that I don't want to go through the door. There's part of me that wants to take David by his shoulders and look him straight in the eye and say, do you understand the storm the tempest that is about to be unleashed in your life. 
tempest of the human heart, which cometh unawares. We've seen that David is a good man. The Bible testifies of David that he's a man after God's heart. And we saw the Apostle Paul say the same thing of him. This is the man who will do everything that I want him to do, as opposed to Saul, who didn't accomplish everything that I wanted him to do. We know that he's a deeply contemplative person. We know that he's a worshiper. Uh, We know that we saw last week, we saw that he was a kind man. Uh, he, He was not willing to repose in his own house, but he begins to think about, I want to build a resting place for the ark of God in this city. But notwithstanding all of that, um, we have this terrible episode in his life which unfolds in chapter 11. Um, I'm going to share this painting with you by Rembrandt, not because it's salacious. It's not particularly salacious. I suppose it might be to some. But in in this genre of painting, nudity is used uh, not for its salacious content, but it's used, or it's not used in a pornographic sense. But nudity in the in this genre of painting is used to signify that the person is innocent. And so Rembrandt uh, paints the picture of Bathsheba, who is just in, in the final stages of taking a bath as the text relates to us. We we heard it that David's on his housetop. It's in late afternoon. David's in his probably early 50s, maybe experiencing some life crisis, middle-aged crisis. And he looks across the way and he sees Bathsheba who's bathing. Um, and she's bathing as a part of a, a, a ritual cleansing after her uh, menstrual period. And Rembrandt paints her uh, now with one leg crossed over the other, servant drying her feet, and she has in her hands a piece of paper, and scholars, art scholars tell us that this is um, David's letter that he has sent to her, uh, not just requesting, but a request from a king then uh, could not be refused without losing your own life. But the letter in her hand is David's command for her uh, to come to the palace. And you can see that Rembrandt has painted a, a, a quizzical expression, some might say, on her face. It's, it's a, um, a thoughtful expression at the very least where she's wondering, no doubt, thinking about what this means for her life, the future of her life, her vows that she had exchanged with Uriah, her husband. Where will this lead? How will this all end? Now the key to... Uh, this story, the 11th chapter of the book of Second Samuel. The key to this story is the word sent. 
Uh, Robert Alter says the, the verb to send occurs 11 times in this chapter, framing the beginning and the end. So if you just turn in your Bible with me to the book of 2 Samuel, you can see this very quickly. I, in fact, <clears throat> have underlined it, uh, the words in, in my Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, first one, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. So David himself, as the king, should have been on the battlefield. Uh, we know that when he's on the battlefield, he's very successful because, as we've seen, the Lord gives him victory. Uh, but for a multitude of reasons, um, during this time when it is normal for, as Robert Alter says, for kings to sally forth and to wage in warfare, because in the springtime, um, the muddy roads begin to dry up and the fields dry up. David uh, remains, that's the word that's used in the text, he remains at home. If you look in verse um, 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. Verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And then in verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Then in verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Again in verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And then finally in verse 27, David sent and brought her to his house. So when we see a word repeated so many times in a chapter of the Bible, it should uh, grab our attention and say, the reason why I am repeating this word over and over and over again for you is for you to understand the theme of this. David is waging his war by proxy. And we are to understand from the text as uh, believers, justified by grace through faith, we are to understand that no one can fight our battles for us but us. No one can fight our battles in the stead of us. And this is David's befalling sin in this chapter. Robert Alter says, David, now a sedentary king, removed from the field of action and endowed with a dangerous amount of leisure, is seen constantly operating through the agency of others. Let's think this morning, if you decided not to come to church, but you decided to send someone to church for you. How many believe that that's probably a good intention? And how many know that that's not going to do the one who's at home much good? 
you may have a conversation with yourself and say, tomorrow I'm going to start a Bible reading program. And you send that person in the morning to get your Bible uh, to read your Bible for you, but they're the ones that are going to do the reading. And they're sitting over in the corner of the room and they're reading. Are you reading Second uh, Samuel chapter 11? Yes. Well, how many know that even though the person might have good intentions, reading the Bible by proxy or through another person is not going to do you any good. I, I, I need to pray more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire somebody to pray for me. I'm going to send someone to church on prayer service night to do my praying for How many see the ridiculousness of that? And that is the lesson that we are to learn in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that we always invite disaster into our lives when we don't get off the rooftop of our lives and down into the battlefield. So I'll just share some preliminary thoughts with you. I'm sorry, all the men here, I apologize that this is the text that we find ourselves with on this happiest of occasion, Father's Day, but maybe um, maybe this will actually save you from some similar heartache. So four things to share with you, and, and I'll share them with you quickly. First of all, um, we should not miss this. This is a reenactment of the Adam and Eve story. Uh, we, we've seen this in the last couple of weeks, that in David, all the residual hopes of the nation re, are, are gathered together in David. He is the one that is going to restore the kingdom and God's people to their rightful place and position. What Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden, this is, this is one of the themes, is now being restored. The kingdom is now being restored in its rightful place through this man, David. It didn't happen through Saul. But now God has on the throne someone who is after God's heart, and this man is going to do all that God bids him to do. If, if you look in this, at this just quickly in that story, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. This is the actual story of the temptation. And here the Bible tells us we are to believe that serpents can talk, that human beings can actually enter into conversation with animals. All right, okay, but what's the larger lesson? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. should not uh, easily dismiss that word took. If you look in our text in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the same way that Eve reached forth to take the fruit, we don't know what it was, although popular conjecture is that it was an apple, but the same way that she took 
the fruit, plucked the fruit, took a bite from it, offered it to Adam, and he ate of it. We should not overlook that word took because in verse 4 of Second Samuel chapter 11, so David sent messengers and took her. We don't know to what degree Bathsheba may have protested. Uh, but her protests would have come to no avail because the king's will uh, would have prevailed. So there is a sense in which David and Bathsheba are reenacting or replaying the roles of Adam and Eve. There is a fall that takes place here. It's not the fall of Adam and Eve, but it is again the fall of another man and another woman. And secondly, this is not anything to be trifled with. Because secondly, David's sin inflicts such a high cost that he never fully recovers. I I know that we sometimes feel that we can sin without uh, any recrimination. Particularly when it comes to sexual sin. Uh, some people reason, well, it's, it's my own private matter. It doesn't hurt anyone else what I'm engaged in. But there are some sins in which people in, in, engage, which they never fully recover from. And that doesn't mean that they're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that God has turned his back on them. It just means and unfortunately, this, this is true. And how else, how could it be otherwise that whatever seed you plant in the ground, that is the crop that you're going to reap? And some people sin uh, flagrantly. Sowing, we, we, talk, we hear the phrase sowing wild oats. What you sow in the ground of your life will eventually come back, has the potential to eventually come back and haunt you. And you say, well, I'm right with the people that I heard. I'm right with God. But none of us begin in this room this morning. None of us approach the royal blood that flowed in David's veins in this story. Here was a man who had at his disposal everything that he needed or wanted. And yet as we follow his life now, from this point on to his final breath, we need to understand that even David is not able to fully recover from what happens in this chapter. Years and years ago, I was preaching a revival when, you know, when I thought I was an evangelist. How many know that's kind of funny? And somebody actually invited me back several times to come to their church. They were really gluttons for punishment. And it was, this is uh, back in the 80s sometime, I think. Ed Kozar pastoring up in Bourbon, Indiana. And it was late. After a church one night, and you know, I couldn't get to sleep, and so he had given me a, a cassette tape 
Can you? This is how long ago this has been. A cassette tape of a sermon. And the sermon was by an old preacher by the name of um, V. Arlen Gidros. Uh, if you met Brother Gidros, and I met him as a young man when I was still in high school, my father invited him to preach at a conference in Connecticut, and my father sent me to pick him up at, at the, at the uh, motel. He was dressed in a black three-piece suit, a white shirt, a black tie, one of those 10-gallon Texas hats on his head, and he had those black shoes with the white stitching. Remember those shoes the old-time preachers used to wear? And they were very careful when they polished those shoes because they took a toothbrush and they made sure that the stitching between the the leather of the shoe and the sole of the shoe, which was white, would never get blackened. So when you looked at them, they were like, and he's, he got in the car. And of course, I was still in high school and, according to him, unsaved. And he was probably right. My hair was kind of longish. My father had sent me over there. He got in the car, sat in the front seat, had his Bible on his lap, didn't say a word to me. Because obviously you can't, you know, you can't, kind of go beneath yourself with this hippie that's driving the car, even if he is the pastor's son. I got to know him much better later on, and actually is a very kind-hearted man. But he preached the message, and he told a story at the beginning of this sermon, and it was a, an article somewhere in a newspaper that he had read about a person who was traveling down the highway and they came upon a bridge, and we've seen this a lot in Texas in the last few weeks, a bridge that had washed out. And this person somehow, they were uh, not going too fast. They were aware enough to be able to not, you know, go into the chasm and, and crash and they stopped just short of that, and then they backed up the car, and the rain's coming down, and the man gets out of the car, and he's standing in the middle of the road, waving his hands at the cars that are coming down the road, saying, you need to stop. Don't, don't go any further. Don't drive down this road. You're, you're going to drive to your death. And then he recounted, how many people drove by who ignored the man's warnings and drove off the road into the chasm and and lost their lives. So many people in our culture today are so nonchalant about the sin that they think they can engage in without recriminations, and yet it is the very thing that is going to kill them. So parents tell their children, you don't need to go there. Parents tell their children, you don't need to do this. And how many, you know, it doesn't matter how old your kids are. Parents are parents. God, that's, that's the way God made parents. You'll always be somebody's kid. Even when your parents are dead and gone, you will hear their voice speaking to you. I don't know how many times when I was driving, learning how to drive. Listen closely, Andrew. 
when I was learning how to drive, I heard my father say to me, he sat over there, I'm sitting there driving. He says, now you want to be careful around this corner. You need to watch your speed. How many know what I'm talking about? You need to watch your speed here. You here, let's see what, what your abilities are like. I want you to drive up to that line and then stop at that line. How many remember the first time you did that in driving class and you, and you had to turn around to see the line? Because you didn't, you didn't judge it correctly. You didn't want to slam on the brakes. But, but listen to me. Sometimes slamming on the brake is better than hitting something. Sometimes making the occupants of the vehicle uncomfortable is better than losing your life. Now, preachers all across the country are exasperated every Sunday morning because they sit out in the middle of the road. They say, you don't want to go down that way. You don't want to do that. You don't want to mess your life up this way. And people say, oh, well, I, you know what? I, you know, I can do what I want to do. You can do what you want to do, but you can't do what you ought to do. And, and the person who comes to that realization sooner in their life than later is a wise person. Life has a way of chewing you up and spitting you out and keep it keeps on going. David sinned and flicked such a high cost that he never fully recovered. David, if any man has the, the potential, the ability, the resources to rewrite this chapter in his life. Surely it's David. But you know what? No human being, no matter if you're the king, if you're the president, or if you're the wannabe president, no human being can prevent death knocking on your door. This is exactly what we see when we get in the 12th chapter. Oh my God, all of us will one day be reduced to a quivering praying mass on our knees saying, Oh God, please. Look at this. This this is a stunning scripture in the book of Numbers chapter 14. This is where Moses is interceding for the people. God is so, well, we, we see this in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts where God has just he put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is one of the incidents where God is just saying, Moses, get out of the way. I'm just going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses prays and intercedes in Numbers chapter 14, and beginning in verse number 13. And he says in verse 17, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger. That's where I got my hat on the hook. I've got my hat hanging on the hook of God's promise that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's forgiving iniquity and transgression. But what's the next word? But he will by no means clear the guilty 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, if that doesn't sober you up out of the drunken stupor of our culture, I don't know what will. You say, well, it's just my life. I'm just going to do with my life what I want to do. And if there's consequences involved in it, then I'll handle that. No, 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 no. Do you you see that there are some things in which human beings, there are some boundaries which human beings are not supposed to transgress. And if you do transgress those boundaries, then not only does it affect you, but it can affect your children and generations to come. Well, how many, how many will vote and say, I like the first part of that verse, but I don't like the second part of the verse so much? I like the icing on the cake, the cake not so much. Should cause us, give us pause to realize that David from this point on, when we come to the tragic story of David's relationship with his own son Absalom, when we come to the tragic story of the rape of Tamar, we will see that David has unleashed, he has opened the door in his life in this chapter to something that is going to continue to haunt him. So these are just preliminary thoughts. Thirdly, saved people, I almost put the word saved in quotes because... You know, I, I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. But I think you understand, if you've, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, saved people are capable of following, falling into the most grievous sins. I don't think that I have to labor that point to convince you of that. And it's not because you've observed the sins of others so much. It's because you've observed the 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 nature process and working of sin in your own heart and life. You know what? It's easy for me to recognize that person's a sinner. But when the Holy Spirit really begins to work in my life, when I realize that I'm a sinner, think about that incident where Peter walks on the water and, and then he... He fails and he begins to sink and Jesus rescues him and they get back to shore. And what, what does Peter say to Jesus? Depart from me. Get away from me. God, I'm, I'm awful. I'm such a sinner. There's a, there's a lot of finger pointing going on in the culture right now for, for many different reasons. And I think it would be good for us say, say, Lord, begin the work in me. Let, let this work of the Holy Spirit begin in me. That I would, that I would not be so much shocked by the sins of others that I am determined, God, by your grace and through the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit to only be shocked by my own sin. We, we talk, well, we want revival to come to the land. We want re- righteousness to be restored uh, to our nation. And we're looking out there, we're looking out there, and all the while there is this, this, this tumor that grows within us. 
It's not benign, it's malignant. Unchecked, it has the ability to choke the very life of God out of us. This is what Jesus said. Don't, don't, you know, you got a little, your friends got a little speck of dust in their eye. And you, how can you see the speck of dust in their eye when you got this big plank, this big hunk of two by four hanging out of your own eye? You know that national revival would come to us as God's people if each one of us took that seriously to heart. Lord, let me be more shocked by my own sin than anyone else's. I said, preacher, you stopped preaching and you went to meddling today. Yeah. Saved people are capable of falling, falling into the most grievous sins. We've become familiar enough with the man called David to know that this is, this is a high caliber, excellent person. And yet, it does all of that for the moment is set aside and the narrator focuses us on this most grievous sin. I want you to look at this, and in, in, we're almost soon to close here. I want you to look at this in the book of 1 John. Remember when Jesus said, uh, if your eye offends you, remember he said this, if your eye offends you, what did he say to do with it? Pluck it out. If your hand offends you, what are you supposed to do? If your foot offends you, I don't know that I've ever been offended by my foot, but somehow I, I got a spider bite on my foot this past week. And you know, you could kind of see the, the, the redness of the poison spreading out from where the bite was. And you would just think about, well, what would it be like if you had to cut your foot off to save your life? You've, you've heard of this, these flesh eating bacteria where, where the doctors, the only remedy they can come up with, they, they keep on chopping the extremities of people off to try to save their life. I can't imagine. Uh, Pistorius in South Africa walked around the court without his, uh, his, his mechanical legs. He was just walking on the stub of his leg. I can't ever imagine to pluck my eye out, cut my hand off, cut my foot off. What does Jesus say? He said, when it comes to your own self-evaluation, you have to be brutally honest. I can't do this. Other people might be able to do this. Other people might be able to go there. Other people may, might be able to drink that. Other people might be, and on and on and on the list goes. But when you evaluate your own life, you have to say, no, I, I can't do that. If I do engage in that, I'm going to unleash a tempest in my life. And there's no worse storm that will overtake a person than the storm that you are not aware of, the storm that will come. See, so we all have good intentions. How many could say you have good intentions this morning? I, how many would say if, if, if I asked you, do you love God? You could say, well, 
Yeah, you know, as much as is is in me and as much as God has revealed himself to me, yes, I have a heart for God. You can raise your hand and say yes to that. But but lurking beneath that, there there is this desperately wicked heart. I want you to see this word ought. It's not a word... That, that we use very much in the English language anymore. The word ought, O-U-G-H-T, ought. Because it's in the English Standard Version of the Bible, in, in 1 John, and it's in, in here in three places. It, it's not so much that we, we should have better intentions. We all have good intentions, but we come up... Eventually in your life, you're going to come up to that wall in your life, the world of flesh and the devil, and they're going to put their hands up in, a, in an unholy trinity and say, you can't go any further. You can't make any more progress. You're, you're stopped dead in your tracks. And then you begin to realize in your relationship with Jesus Christ, as a disciple, there are some things that are easier to accomplish than others. But how many know that the the path of discipleship is a narrow path. Look at this. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him. There's a good intention. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. Oh, well, Pastor Allen, please, could you, could you just make it more compatible to what my nature is? Why do you have to, why, you calling me a liar? Well, look at the scripture. If you say you know him, here it is, these people draw nigh unto me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, what's the next word? Ought. That, or you could substitute the word should there. In other words, your walk is supposed to correspond with your confession. If you say, if I say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then my walk, that means how I live my life, should correspond with that. Somebody here this morning is saying to themselves, I got a problem with that. Guess what? We all got a problem with that. The spirit is willing, right? The disciples are snoring aware. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Meaning that the flesh is really strong. You know what? You, you You can want to do the things that you want to do. And we'll see this quote. But human beings don't have the power, intrinsic power in and of themselves to will what they want to will. You say, that's a very pessimistic evaluation of human nature. 
You know, after 40 years of preaching, I wish that I could find something that contradicted it, but I, I haven't found it yet. There, there are all sorts of people have come through the doors of this church, sat on the pews you're sitting in this morning with good intentions. But their life became a shipwreck. Send somebody else to church for me. Send somebody else to read my Bible. Send somebody else to pray. Send, 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 send. Never showing up. Never making themselves available to God. Putting themselves in a position where God could get at them. Constantly living their Christian walks by proxy. Through someone else. That was my grandma's faith. That was my mother's faith. That was my father's belief. What about you? You're just going to constantly send this makeup, make-believe character in your life to be the person that you want to be? Or are you going to own it yourself and say, no, no, I'm going to become the man. I'm going to become the woman that God wants me to become. There it is. It, it's, it's life as we know it, life as it is, realistic. And here's life that I would like over here. Well, the, the, only, the only way you are going to bridge that gap is a hard road of self-discipline. And the Holy Spirit will be there every step. Look, John, 1 John chapter 3 And verse 16, by this we know love that he laid, speaking of Jesus, down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Woo! There's a world, there's a, there's a year of Sundays in that verse. You know, if the Bible speaks of something that we should be doing, that means that we're probably not doing it. How many get that? Pay pay some theological attention. How many get that? If the Bible says we should be doing something, it's that warning is there because most of God's people are not doing what should be done. We're doing, we're picking the low-hanging fruit. We're, We're accomplishing the things that are easy. We're, you know, I could give you... seven steps this morning to preserve the sanctity of your marriage and keep from adultery. And you'd walk out of here and you'd say, that's a wonderful sermon, can't remember a thing that he said. But if the Holy Spirit takes God's word and he gives you ears to hear and he makes the application, that's a lesson that will go with you to your dying day. This is so good, I'm almost preaching myself under conviction. I might just have to quit and go to the altar. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought, ought to love one another. Here's Schopenhauer's quote, man can do what he wants. We, we like that. I can do what I want. 
Man can do what he wants, but he cannot will what he wills. Augustine took that, Augustine really reworked that thought. He said, man can do what he wants, but he cannot do what he ought. That means in my life as born under the curse, I do not, without the help indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, I do not have the stuff that it takes to make God happy. Now, the the popular church in America, the culture is, is full of this flotsam and piffle that floats by every so often that we understand to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's nothing more than you can do this. You're actually a good person. Come on, let's get together. Let's pull together. Let me inspire you. Let me lift you up. Finally, you say that's pretty good for preliminary thoughts. Guess what? If you want to take the summer off, I understand, but we're going to be in Second uh, Samuel chapters 11 and 12 for a while. Fourthly, you can't send someone else to fight your battle. It just doesn't work that way. I'm going to write a check out. Well, you know what? You know what? If I don't take the check, Bishop Christie will. I've never seen her refuse a check from anyone. She receives it with a grateful smile on her face and does a little dance, waves it in the air and says, praise the Lord, and right all the way to the bank. And you would say, I've done a good thing, and you've done a good thing. There's, there's no dispute about it. God bless you. Keep those checks, tithes, and offerings, and we're soon to take PayPal, no doubt. Keep them coming. And that's not to denigrate the idea that that, uh, fiscal responsibility is part of a Christian discipleship. But if, if you think that, you can discharge all of your obligation by writing a check. That's like David said. You know what, go... Here, give me, come on, uh, messenger boy. Let me write it, scribble out something here. Yeah, take it on over there. That, they'll, they'll be happy with that. You say, well, well, well that's, gee, I, I just feel, I just feel totally decimated. Like you just cut me down at the ankles, Pastor Allen, this morning. And it, it, this happens Sunday after Sunday. And what am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give up. You're supposed to throw your hands up in the air and say, God, I give up. I can't do it. And God is like, oh, we're making progress here. They finally gave up. They had convinced themselves that they could do a better job running their own life than I could. How foolish is that? This is the best understanding of this. This Look, this is a battle of sanctification. Paul, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
John says in 1 John, we won't take the time to look at it this morning. He said, I write unto you, young men, because you're strong. How do we get strong, strengthened in the Lord? There's not a person here this morning that hasn't failed in some degree in their Christian walk. I won't make liars out of you and ask you to raise your hands. Yes, I've failed because some of you are like, oh, I... It's true. If you're, if you're walking in shoe leather, you, you've failed to some, you, you've done something in your life that you don't want anybody else to know about. How many could say that? The rest of you are liars. Liars. <laughs> right? How, how many, how many would say that? I, there are things in my, about my life that I would not, I would be absolutely and totally ashamed if somebody else, if somebody else knew or found out about. We could all sit on a pew and raise our hands and our feet. Yeah, that's me. So, so what's the solution? Here, here's the best definition. It's a Lutheran def- definition. Sanctification is simply walking out the truths of justification. Jesus gave his life for me. That's the truth of justification. What should I do in sanctification? I should give my life for him. I once phoned uh, the Lutheran radio station because I had a question. That the old song, remember, Jesus paid it all. How many like that? Jesus paid it all. Then the next line is, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, come on, sing it with me. This is Garrison Keeler. He was. Stood white as snow once again. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And we'll go into a Beatles song later. So I asked them a question. I said, is that good Lutheran theology? Jesus paid it all. That's good Lutheran theology. But all to him I owe, is that good Lutheran theology? I thought they would have said no. They said, no, that's good Lutheran theology. Does God want us to be overwhelmed with a sense of a burden of guilt and despair in that I owe a debt that I cannot pay to him? No. But he certainly wants us to live our lives with a sense, a scent of an aroma in our lives as though we are obligated to him. Just just walk it out. You say, well, God loves me. Okay, that's the truth of justification. What is the truth of sanctification? Well, John tells us, if God loves us in such a way, we ought also to love God in a similar fashion. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.